welcome to Stories from Home, Living the Just Transition, a podcast series by the Climate Justice Alliance that takes us behind the scenes in local communities building sustainable and equitable climate justice solutions in their own backyards. Climate Justice Alliance is a growing member alliance of 70 urban and rural frontline communities, organizations, and supporting networks in the climate justice movement. In Stories from Home, Living the Just Transition, we'll hear from the organizations, creators, and communities spotlighted in Story Snapshots, a new CJA project that draws from local arts, creativity, and culture to express the vision, heart, and day-to-day work of communities building just transitions across the Alliance. I'm Keenan Rhodes with CJA and the Kepper Institute in Indianapolis, and I'll be your host. This episode, I speak with Noemi Rodriguez and Gabriela Cartagena of Greenroots, a community-based multilingual organization in East Boston that advocates for environmental justice and focuses on community engagement and empowerment, youth leadership, and innovative projects and campaigns as a way to bring about just transition in their community. Today, we talk about language justice, the connection between immigrants' rights and environmental justice, as well as the community's fight for inclusion in neighborhood decision-making. Check this out and more in their story snapshot, a short film and series of family portraits that give a glimpse into the heart and people of East Boston. You can find Greenroot Story Snapshot at storiesnapshots.climatejusticealliance.org, along with other CJA groups that have shared their experience of just transitions through art, culture, and expression in their communities. But before we jump in, a nod to language justice, which you'll hear more about in the interview. Language justice is the reason this episode is also available in Spanish. It's the right to communicate in the language we are most comfortable with. Language justice is essentially important when it comes to community, civic participation, and making vital information accessible to various members of a multilingual community, as highlighted in this interview and in the Green Roots Story Snapshot. You'll hear Hasmin Rumbaut in this episode translating Noemi's responses to English. Take a listen. First, I'd like to ask both of you uh, to introduce yourselves. Um, what is your name? Um, how did you get to Green Roots? And what do you do at Green Roots? Okay, my name is Noemi Rodriguez. And how did I come to Green Roots? It was through an injustice that was happening in our neighborhood. And this is something that had happened over seven years of rebuilding an electrical plant. And I'd been a resident of East Boston for eight years, and I didn't know that they were building an electrical plant inside of our community. So that's what made me pay attention to what was happening at the meeting that was going on with Green Roots, and that's how I learned of this project. And that's what made me get involved to work with the communities, since a lot of people didn't know about that project, and they were about to prove it. What's your level of involvement? Like, how are you involved in Green Roots? Well, my level of involvement was very high because I was concerned about what was happening in the community where my children are also growing up. And so I was part of that story. Now I'm an organizer with Green Roots in the East Boston coast area. 
Gabby, if you want to speak to that question as well. Okay, my name is Gabriela, and I initially got involved with Green Roots, I think a couple years ago, also because of the Eversource substation. I got involved because my friend interpreted for an Eversource substation meeting, a community meeting, and she's the one, she does not live in East Boston, and she's the one who told me about the project and was like, yo, Gabby, like, they're trying to build a high voltage substation near your house. Like, get, do something. You need to get involved. Like, and at that point um, in time, I was leading youth doing coastal resilience work with the trustees. That's when my friend, Sonia, an interpreter, connected me with Indira, the old coastal resilience organizer, which is now the position Noemi has. And we collaborated with the youth and got them involved in learning about not only the Eversource substation, but learning more about environmental justice and what that means and how those injustices have manifested in their lives, um, you know, growing up in, in, my, in my life as well, since we all live and grew up in East Boston. Um, so that's how I originally got involved and learned about Green Roots. Now, I used to be the Water Furnishing Organizer with Noemi together, but now my level of involvement with Green Roots has now um, reduced a little in capacity because I'm no longer a paid organizer with them. I now organize with City Life Urbana doing housing justice work, anti-displacement work, but City Life Urbana and Green Roots right now, along with other grassroots organizations, are part of a coalition in East Boston called Pueblo. People united in East Boston to liberate and organize. Um, and through Pueblo, right, City Life and Green Roots and, and more organizations are doing work around trying to stop one of the biggest luxury developments that's currently proposed in the city of Boston, which is actually in our neighborhood. East Boston, right next to one of the only natural salt marshes in the city of Boston. Um, so my participation with Green Roots is now through a housing justice lens, an anti-displacement lens, and we work together in this coalition Pueblo, which is also highlighted in the, in the um, story snapshot. Thank you both for your backstories on how did y'all get to Green Roots. But let's back up a little further, because you both mentioned the development of this plant. So two questions for context. What is Green Roots? And what is this plant that's being built in, in East Boston? Yes, well, Green Roots is a nonprofit organization that it fights against environmental injustices that put the communities at risk where people live. So that's why this struggle continues. And Green Roots is also part of the language justice movement because within this um, electric plant um, issue, that we've seen a lack of uh, adequate communication across languages. And so uh, that's why Green Roots is also involved in that because they're trying to build in a place where they're putting our risk at health and they also invest danger. And that's what Green Roots does. It's a nonprofit organization and also works with public transport 
for transit and also food justice and also with a group of young people who are empowered and educated about how to work together within the community yeah and um in regards to what the Everest Source project is as noemi shared a little earlier this Everest Source substation had work being done on it like almost eight years ago. Eight years ago, the city of Boston and what once was NSTAR, which is now Eversource, rebranded as Eversource. Over eight years ago, there was a under the table land swap near the Chelsea Creek and on the Greenway, which is this like bike path slash park near Massport, the airport here in East Boston. The city of Boston wanted to make a new library, so they did this land swap so they can make this library next to this in this beautiful greenway. Also, back then, our current city mayor of Boston, which was um, Thomas and Menino, he promised us he promised the neighborhood of East Boston a new soccer field. And where the substation is currently proposed to be built was where our prior mayor promised the neighborhood of East Boston a soccer field. And East Boston is a historically immigrant, like newly arrived immigrant community. And soccer is, is a big part of the, the brown um, immigrant community. And soccer is very high demand. So once word started getting out that Eversource has, is now proposing to build a 115,000 voltage substation in a flood zone next to a playground next to 8 million tons of, um, um, don't quote me on the tons, <laughs> but I think, Noemi, is it 8 million tons of, of jet fuel gas? Um, but there's a, a t there's a tank fuel farm right next to the Chelsea Creek, which is also right next to the Eversource substation that's being proposed. So this Eversource substation is being proposed on this piece of land that ideally was going to be a soccer field, right? Which it would have been perfect, like flood field, flood zone, soccer field, grass, perfect. But now we're seeing a high risk infrastructure being proposed to be built in a high risk zone, which has gone through, as Noemi said, a completely exclusive community participation process that has completely excluded the participation of East Boston's multilingual community. Um, and throughout that whole process, that whole community process with Eversource was predominantly in English, it was only in English. There were points where the Energy Facility Siting Board, which is the state board that is in charge of making that final decision, whether the substation gets built or not, they had meetings where East Boston community members sat in for hours not understanding a lick of what was being said in English because there's no no interpretation provided by the state. Even though, right, our, our civil rights say they should provide like language access that was not provided. And there was a point where the Spanish community members testified in Spanish in that English only meeting, but the Energy Facility Cited Board was able to finesse interpretation from Spanish to English but not interpretation for the community. So that was kind of like a big milestone as to how much the state does not care or put any intention in its community participation process in communities or even like do its research to, 
to know who lives in these communities, what language, what type of language accesses do these communities need? So at this point, we're still pending a final decision. And we're still putting pressure, Greenroots in the community is still putting pressure on the Energy Facility Siting Board, on the EFSB, to reject this project and to build it elsewhere, right? Because why are we still building high-risk infrastructure in 2020 in an environmental justice community? Why aren't we building more sustainable, alternative, municipally-owned energy infrastructures? It's 2020, and, and we're still fighting the government to be able to, you know, safely, to continue to safely live in our neighborhoods. Thank you for the context and the backstory behind this Eversource um, project and the conflict between this large harmful institution and their own relationship, negative relationship with community. It brings about, I would say, a couple pieces that I got from watching the video, the video snapshot that you produced. And in the video, there were multiple languages um, and cultures and ethnicities spoken and represented. So I was wondering if you could also speak to what makes East Boston home for these folks and then how do people feel about home living there in that, with all the, in the midst of all this conflict? Well, one thing, as you've said, it's like the cultures. A lot of times, you know, well, our children, in my case, our children have grown up in East Boston. So their lives have been with their friends. They have their neighbors and other friends. And we think it's unfair to have to leave a place because of fear of contamination. We already carry a lot. And, you know, a lot of these cultures, like, for example, Colombians, Salvadorans, Guatemalans, Mexicans, and including other races, too, we're here. And, you know, they mean to live their, spend their whole lives here where they arrived. Because it's like a port where a lot of us immigrants arrived because we felt that, that hope, you know, we speak the same language and that we're going to care for one another as a community. So I think that's what makes us feel like we're in a place that um, is ours. We speak the same language, but we feel fear when we're attacked and we don't have someone that can help us uh, like um, in the case of green roots that's that's fighting for us in the community and also you know we think about what what's the future of our children going to be like if there's not a park if there's not a, a place for recreation east boston is a place that is contaminated highly contaminated and there aren't places where children can develop mentally and physically so that makes us feel that you know, this is our community. This is where we've come. This is where we've lived for years. And lots of people will say the same thing, you know, families, you know, they'll say, you know, I arrived 17 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And this is what makes us feel that we love this community and that we belong, to, belong deserve to be here. And Gabby, could you also speak to that as an um, East Boston resident yourself? Yeah. Um, so my parents, see. They- immigrated from El Salvador decades ago and East Boston was where they came. They decided to go to East Boston because there were other people from their pueblo, from their um, community in East Boston that already came to East Boston. So they already knew coming to East Boston that, that there are Salvadorans there, right? They felt comfort with knowing that people they know that speak their language are in East Boston. So they, they felt welcome there. 
And and for me now, East Boston is home because that's where I can smell my culture. That's where I smell the pupusas. That's where I can eat pupusas, which is um, a Salvadoran dish. For those listening, delicious. Um, that's where, you know, Mexicans can, can smell their dish. That's where our Vietnamese brothers and sisters can also, like, can find their food. And I think what makes East Boston home is the amount or the growing solidarity that we're seeing and living, right? As Noemi said, there's a lot of disproportionate impact in East Boston because of, because, you know, we live next to a bunch of harmful industries like the airport and these like tank, um, jet fuel tankers. As of recently, especially with, with the uprisings we're seeing across the nation, Right. I recently learned that there there were East Boston residents, like Black East Boston residents, who were scared to live in East Boston because East Boston has historically been known as a very racist community. And East Boston has been home to many waves of immigrants. And and I just really want to uplift like East Boston is home now, especially now more than ever because of the amount of solidarity I am living and like taking part in not only within like the immigrant community, but also within the black community, within, within this, you know, East Boston is a multiracial pot. East Boston is home because of the mountain resistance we have to put in as individuals and together as community members against, you know, this, against like the pollution, against white supremacy, against police brutality, against language injustice. There's just so many layers of oppression in East Boston. Together, our resistance, you know, has brought the community together, in, in my opinion. And, and that's why East Boston feels like home, because there was a point where East Boston did not feel like home, because I did not feel that solidarity, you know, growing up. Growing up, you know, I just see a lot of people getting displaced. But now, you know, people are still being displaced, but now there's a stronger sense of solidarity because we've been able to better and more tightly knit the loose threads within our community as the time has passed, especially now during this pandemic. It's, it's messed up, but that's one beautiful thing that has come out of this. So a lot of what I've heard, East Boston is has become community for many immigrants that have come from all over and settled in this place and raised children and also brought their culture and their heritage with them. And so it creates a sense of home in East Boston for other people that are also arriving from other places. One thing that, especially in the midst of a pandemic and on many fronts, not just COVID-19, but also the pandemic um, and climate change, it's often the folks that are maybe don't have as many resources or do not have uh, the same type of rights in this country that I'll say uh, white people do that often get hit with the burden of climate change. So could you explain more clearly uh, this connection between immigrant rights of the people in East Boston and environmental justice? And if you could speak to the history of that connection um, in East Boston or even broader, and then um, how it looks today, would appreciate that. Um, I could say a few words about that. It's very difficult when we're talking about migration, since, um, you know, when I started to participate in organizations, I was scared 
I felt that something could happen to me, I would be arrested and I'd be handed over to immigration. That's what I felt. And so a lot of times, I think that, I think a lot of families have that fear to fight for their rights because we think that we're going to be trapped by you know, whoever or that we're going, something's going to happen to us if we speak up. We don't know our rights. And since we don't know our rights, we're more vulnerable to exposing ourselves, um, our health in, in our lives, like what's happening with this electrical plants. We were going um, through this moment that we didn't know it could be a risk for our community, but we were seeing the high levels of contamination. And a lot of times our children become ill and we don't know how. And I think that this is what makes us more, more vulnerable, not having, you know, a legal migratory status. And I think that there are also many abuses because, you know, we're not really taken into consideration the same way that a, a, a white community will. And so we're almost always the ones in greater risk, one, because of, of the economic issues, we're the working class, we earn the bare minimum and that makes us the most vulnerable and what exposes us to that danger and so that's the fear that keeps us silence that's what makes us have to go through all of these situations and so that's why we're organizing to educate the community so that we can know our rights because not knowing them makes us vulnerable and gabby if you could speak to that same question on the connection between immigrant rights and environmental justice i just want to say that in, I want to take Honduras as an example. I know people, environmental justice warriors from Honduras that because of the work they did, they were prosecuted by their government. They fled, they had to refuge out of Honduras, come to Boston, come to East Boston and start from zero. And a connection with environmental justice in the U.S., and immigration is that, at least here in the U.S., you don't have to fear for your life, per se. You don't have to fear, I don't want to say this 100%, but you don't have to fear that the government is going to come assassinate you because of the work you're doing to protect your land. And a lot of our people have left their home countries because the work that they were doing out there, the agricultural work that they were doing back home, has been disrupted because of the very random like climate patterns that that is being caused due to global due to the global climate crisis right people can no longer work the fuels that they've been working for generations because of climate change so they've had to come to the US and here i would say that there's definitely a disconnect between the immigrant rights movement and the environmental justice movements here in East Boston, that's definitely something we're working on and trying to mend and build right together. And I would say that the biggest connection within the immigrant rights movement and environmental justice movement is that at the end of the day, those most disproportionately harmed need to lead. Those who are undocumented need to lead the immigrant rights movement. And those same people need to also be in the front lines for environmental justice and share that space with those who've also been marginalized for generations. 
and who just happen to be documented, right? Sometimes we could kind of forget that we're in the same fight. At the end of the day, we're both immigrant rights movement and the environmental justice, move, environmental justice movement. We have the same targets, right? Those same people, Trump is the same person who is destroying even further immigrant documentation system or, or immigration system here in the U.S. And that same person and his and his cabinet and team are the same people who are pushing these environmental deregulations. So tell me more about these these efforts and these community, more specifically, these community-based efforts in fighting for the rights and the humanity of folks in East Boston. So you spoke about what Green Roots does, but tell me more about how you both show up and engage in community in trying to stop this plant from being built, how to represent folks that maybe not speak English, how to make sure that the word is out, and what kind of education you give out to the community or that you provide on what we're seeing today. The strategy that we use is walking with people and um, educate them about the rights that we have, why it's not good to have a subsistence or a plant in our community and, and because of the effect that that could have on people. So we, we, we teach how we can fight to defend ourselves so that we don't have an electrical plant in our community. So people get excited and they start to have, you know, those, those frequent questions of how can we fight? You know, we want to know how to do it. So that's where, well, first we, we ask for the ideas. We ask for ideas to come out of the community. We ask people for their ideas. And based on those, we commit to help and to struggle together. So we always wait for the community to speak. What do they feel? What do you feel about having an electrical plant in the neighborhood? First, we ask to see what the answers are. You know, if there's a fear or, you know, why it's not important or like what are the risks, all of that. So the community itself offers that. And when they speak of that or something that has happened, then that's when we act because we know that a problem is going on and that this is going to uh, affect everyone in general within the community. And that's how we try to educate, to get together and to speak about uh, what the next step would be. And that's where we find our guidance. And Gabby, could you also speak to that? And also Gabby, um, as a... Um, so if you could speak to that same question about what folks are doing in terms of organizing themselves um, and the type of community education that goes on and speak more specifically to your role as a storyteller. Yeah, and also could back up that information also with explaining more on this Story Snapshot project. Yeah, so I just wanna second everything Noami just shared and also say that we, definitely center people's experiences in their learning and understand the importance of stories, the importance of people's testimonies when trying to push for larger systematic change. And as a storyteller, right, that's that's something I, I accept and hone and celebrate. A lot of the times, 
you know, when we have, when we had those community meetings, when we can meet in person, we would teach people about like, what is the energy facility siding board? Like, what is this body? What is, what does this word mean? Like very complicated terminology that even when it's translated, it still doesn't make sense in your own language. So education was definitely big um, when organizing, right? Because when you educate, you empower. And that's that's how the first steps of building leaders. And also, like, when educating, like, letting people, giving people the space to be able to share their stories, right? A lot of the times, you would brainstorm together. And people would say, oh, we should have live streams. Oh, you should, like, interview us. I'm like, great. All right. Who's trying to sign up to get interviewed? Right? As, as a storyteller, I think it's really important to be able to make those spaces and facilitate them in a way where people feel safe and comfortable to want to maybe share more. As a storyteller, like, even when we're having these meetings, I kind of just ask, like, hey, is it okay if I record? Um, because this, this process of, of building together is, is history. We need to archive that. How many times do you see immigrant families, immigrant um, family leaders get up in front of an audience of a bunch of white politicians and, and people who speak English and testify in their own language, telling these politicians and our boards what they're doing wrong, what they should be doing, and how what they're doing wrong has affected their lives. And I think it's really important to know that a lot of the times our families, because of they've lived so many years of trauma, it can be really hard to share your story. And sometimes it takes like a little guidance to help people feel more confident when sharing, right? Telling them, all right, like when you share your story, just remember, like, tell us how you felt during that experience. Tell us what happened and tell us what, what change you'd want to see. Like, Give them a very open, like loose-ended guideline for them to just fill with their personal experience. Like, personal experiences has to be the root of our education, right? Personal experiences is the root of popular education, and I take popular education very close to my heart when I document and. One of and one of the most important things is is creating safety and trust when in those spaces, because if you don't have safety, trust, and or consent when when documenting or or you know trying to document people's stories, it's just not it's not the same, and you don't get people's authenticity on camera because they don't because you never invited their authentic self. Thanks for tuning in to Stories from Home. In June, the Climate Justice Alliance, as a founding member of the United Frontline Table, launched the People's Orientation to a Regenerative Economy. This tool includes more than 80 policy recommendations that you can reference as you fight to protect, repair, invest in, and transform your communities to achieve just transitions to a regenerative economy. We hope you'll use it and share it widely. Find the People's Orientation at climatejusticealliance.org slash regenerative economy. So actually, I realized we've gone a while in this conversation, and this has been very enlightening conversation so far. And I realized never asked you directly about 
the story snapshot project as far as what is it and where did the idea come from to produce this video story snapshot well the story snapshot started way before we were even asked by climate justice alliance to do it personally right i i kind of just shared the importance of the importance for me to to document our growing history, just because in my family in El Salvador, when your family comes from poverty, there are no written documents of your history. There, there are barely any photos of your history. We see, like as many, you know, throughout the world, we've seen so many indigenous communities have their history literally burned into flames. So documentation for me on a personal level has always been very, very important and close to my heart. So once I, I started to see like, yo, like, we're really doing this. Like, I need to get my camera out and start recording. You know, in these meetings or and or times where people are firing or, you know, testifying, that's where, where I'm kind of like, yo, like, we're really doing this work. Like, we need to document this because if, if we don't document it, who else will? So that was just kind of my drive to documenting like that growing empowerment and that growing leadership within our our immigrant communities within the east boston community having a brown dad who does not speak english testify or seeing that single mother get up and and testify for her first time that is history and we need to record that history and be able to share it so more single mothers and more dads who don't know English can get up and, and feel empowered enough to do the same thing. That's how we started recording. But in regards to the snapshot, um, I think the, like my principle of, of really respecting and honoring resilience was that, was the seed to the project. That your values was the seed to uh, this project. For me to deciding, all right, like, like, let's focus on language justice. Let's focus on resistance and, and valuing, you know, people's leadership development throughout this process of resisting the substation and resisting this 10,000 unit suffolk downs project. Seeing that resistance was in, in wanting to honor that resistance was, was the seed to the project. FYI. East Boston residents are fighting for their voices to be heard in two different projects, the Eversource Energy Company's proposed substation and the Suffolk Downs Luxury Condo Project. Residents are opposed to Eversource's proposed 15,000-volt substation, which would be built next to a playground, and 9 million gallons of jet fuel tanks, where a soccer field was once promised by the former mayor of Boston. Additionally, Green Roots, as a part of a larger coalition called Pueblo, is demanding that at least some of the Suffolk Downs units be affordable for East Boston residents. Now back to Gabby. And the seed and that seed stems to that seed stems and pointed to language justice, which connected the substation to the Suffolk Downs redevelopment process because both processes were very faulty with again the lack of adequate community participation. Here Boston. What were some of the successes and challenges to this story snapshot project? 
I think that this is the best thing that could be done based on real stories, because honestly, these are real stories that are, are born out of what we live through when we come here. This is about how we could express ourselves using a video, how we can express the injustices, the lack of justice that exists. And I think that that was the idea of, of how that the displacements uh, rippled after some of these uh, big developers came and how that affected the community. And so even if the videos seem like they're simple, it's just people telling their story, I think it actually has a very, it has a lot of power because that's the reality. I don't think we could say, you know, maybe it's, it's, some things are easier said than done. I, I think I think that, you know, Gabby had to work a lot to make this happen. I remember that. And it's about finding the time so that people can express um, that that feeling. I think that's, that's been a big win for me. I think that's been a big success. You know, how can a community express the suffering, the injustices, and the fact that a lot of times we're not heard. I think that that video can carry forward a very big, powerful message. And um, as the creator um, and primary filmmaker of the video, Gabby, how, what would you say were some of the successes and challenges in making this? One of the successes was, like, like Noemi just mentioned, like the fact that we documented real life. Like, this is all real. This, none of this is made up. These are real people who felt comfortable enough to talk in front of a camera and real people who feel comfortable enough to let me document them, you know, off guard during meetings, off guard during radio shows. And these are real people who a few years back or even months back did not have that courage to be able to say what they said in front of a camera or yet alone, like a politician who, who does not speak their language. I'd say one of the biggest challenges has been time. <laughs> Because like Noemi said, this, this, that, documenting all that footage took a lot of time, like, took a lot of meetings, it took a lot of planning, it, it took a lot of convincing, it took a lot of developing, you know, time was definitely the challenge because it, it really required me to, to really carry my camera everywhere, carry my camera and my mic everywhere. And there'd be times where they'd make fun of me, like, oh, like, what's that furry thing you got? I'm like, oh, that's the mic. It's the, it's the thing that fights the wind. Trust me, and like, it's, it's, it's safe, it's clean. So I think those were my biggest challenge as, as a filmmaker. And, and really doing this, like the production and really doing the production on my own was challenging, like going through the footage, going through all the footage, hours and hours of footage, choosing like what what is best for the video and I, i'd say again time and doing this production pretty much solo was was hard and and figuring out how to make it as creative as possible um and there was a point where i had to track a couple poets who i recorded in the past and tracking them was not easy storytelling definitely as an effective form of community building Sharing those authentic stories also provides people like a tangible experience and something to look at that says, you know, we are here. This is our home and we will not be erased. That is one of the strongest 
tools for resistance that many communities have used in their own fights for their own rights to self-determination and self-autonomy. And I'm thinking, what are some of the other ways in which, even in the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of, um, I would say, accelerated state violence, what are some ways East Boston residents can continue to do to pull together their own resources and agency to address their own challenges? So I don't know if this is the right thing to say, but um, I would say that it's one of the way that we've organized ourselves between different organizations to be able to support and protect a lot of people who haven't had, you know, monetary funds or, or other ways of, of, of supporting themselves. And, you know, we've gotten together in different organizations to also carry that uh, voice of encouragement. I think that communities of color like ours have been those who have suffered the most. And, you know, but the more that we live through, the stronger that we get. And so we've had that um, spirit of encouraging our people and saying, okay, you know, we don't have this thing, but we can help you find it. So I think that we have been able to carry that heavy weight, but we're doing it because we're a community. We've also felt that the community has responded. A lot of families are happy to be able to to make it, to make live through it, because as I've said, you know, we've been hit really hard. Some people have lost their lives. I think we've never lost the battle. And I think that that's the most important part. You know, we're always encouraging uh, organizations, you know, we're here to, to support you. So one way or another, we're supporting ourselves. It's not just organizations, it's families. Families are collaborating in, to offer help between ourselves so that together we can we can live through this. And Gabby, if you could speak to the same question. Yeah, um, I would say that one thing people could do during COVID-19 crisis is talking to their neighbors and, and getting to know who lives near them, get to know your street. I think one of the most important things now is, is knowing who your neighbors are and having that, that relationship with them. Thanks to both Noemi and Gabby for joining me today. And a special thanks for this episode to Hazmin for translation. See you next time. If you like what you hear, please share this episode. Donate at climatejusticealliance.org and sign up for our newsletter for updates. Also, let us know what you think of the podcast. You can find all our contact information, including social media, at climatejusticealliance.org. Story Snapshots is a project by the Climate Justice Alliance. From local to international, from prairies to mountains to island shores, from youth to elders, we work together toward a shared vision for the future. Stories from Home, Living the Just Transition is produced by Jessica Zhao, Keenan Rhodes, Olivia Burlingame, and Samantha Harvey. Our sound editing team includes Elijah Pogues, Jennifer Wager, and Callie Wright. The music is One Fine Day by The Insider and Stuff Will Never Love You Back by Dr. Turtle.